Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 to 10, the Word of God. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. As the grass withers and the flower fades, God's word does indeed endure forever. May he bless it. As we hear it, I did say we were only going to have two more messages, but in the preparation of this message, I realized it was just way too long and there was more to cover on the particular subject that we're dealing with uh, this week and next week. And that's the whole issue of the church being one, uh, the unity of the church. And I chose this text because, as you can see, both in verse 3 and over to verse 13, the issue of unity is what uh, Paul is stressing here for the church. And so the next two sermons are focusing on that oneness, that unity of Christ's church. Still a huge subject. Uh, Two sermons doesn't even cover all that pertains to it. But we we need to understand part of the character, part of the nature of being Christ's church is being one. You who have been part of Christ's church for any time and who have been part of hope for any time know that we hear that phrase in our creeds, both the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, that we believe in one holy Catholic church. And there the unity of the church is set before us. That word one, uh, one holy Catholic church. Let's just take a few seconds to, to unpack that phrase. One is speaking about how we have been made one, uh, chosen and loved by the Father from eternity and given as an inheritance to the Lord Jesus Christ. We together collectively represent that one inheritance that belongs to the Lord given to Him by the Father. And and we're going to sing it when we come to that very famous and familiar hymn, The Church is One Foundation. That phrase, we are elect from every nation yet, one or all the earth. And that, that unity that is ascribed to the church is a precious thing. Christ Jesus, we know, only has one body. And if you're thinking, yes, He only has one body, then why are there many denominations? Well, that, that, that's something I'll touch on very uh, shortly. But 
though there are many denominations and though there are millions of particular congregations throughout the world, the truth is there still is only one church, one body, one head. And, And what makes the church one is of truth that headship and lordship of Jesus Christ. It's very interesting in our text, especially as we focus on verses 1 to 6, when Paul says there, keep the unity of the Spirit, verse 3. And then he goes on in verses 4 to 6 to use that word one. Well, those are two of the same word. Unity is rooted in the Greek word for one. And Paul is saying, why are we united? It's because we have one God in three persons. So the church is one. The church is also holy. One holy Catholic church. And the holiness of the church reflects again the holiness of our God and what God has made us to be one holy church in this world. The church is the new holy nation among the nations and becomes that that visible picture to the world of the kingdom of God. But that one holy church consists of all. And this is, again, from Scripture. You're going to see the, the joining together of one and holy, how they belong together. Uh, the church is, is all who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.2 So everyone who is a Christian, everyone who expresses faith and hope and love in Christ Jesus the Lord are considered saints, are considered uh, those who are being sanctified in Christ Jesus, are considered one holy people. That word sanctified and that word saint mean holy mean to be separate and called out from the world to be God's people. And, and as that, that idea of the oneness of the church is before us and how that one church is to be holy, uh, Jesus spoke to this. For the church to understand that they are not of this world, but that they now belong to Him, He who is our covenant head. And the Lord even prayed that we would understand this in, in John 15, uh, sorry, John 17, uh, at verse 15. As he is praying for his church, he says, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And there Jesus, and he goes on to pray for that oneness and unity that we are to have as God's holy people. But there the Lord reminds us of what it means to be holy. It means to not be of this world. It means to govern our lives in a way that shows that we belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. And we are part of that one visible body of Christ. And the church is not only one and holy, it is also Catholic. 
And by that we mean it is worldwide, universal. That the church, not the churches, the church includes everyone who lives in faith and hope and love, who is in the same Spirit of God, who have been called to the same inheritance of eternal life and participation in one God and Christ. And though we have and see many denominations and many individual churches, and there are millions upon millions of churches throughout the world, there still is only one holy Catholic Church in the eyes of God. Now, I said all of that before you very quickly so that you, you can see where we're going with these, uh, with these two sermons uh, in a short bit. But I want to deal. What, what, what about the church being one and yet seeing all of these denominations and all of these individual congregations? Now, one man noted that the scandal of denominations really speaks against an understanding of the church being one. I don't go that far. I don't really have a problem with denominations uh, this side of heaven. Uh, Paul declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he said, no doubt there must be factions among you so that you can see or understand who is right. <laughs> But this side of heaven, there is no denomination, no church that can stand there and say, we've got it all together. (laughs) We've arrived. We are the true church of Jesus Christ. And I defy any church to say it in that sense of having everything perfected in their midst. We live this side of glory. We live as sinners this side of glory. And we understand that, that what we are talking about with that one true glorified church, it's what we're waiting for and what we know we are part of now, but on this side of eternal glory, we are faced with the problems of disagreement, of interpretation, of understanding, of doctrine. I say this with my Baptist brothers. We both believe in baptism. And for the most part, our theology of baptism is the same. We just disagree on who should receive the sign. We have a different understanding of what the church is. Because we believe that the church here today, the visible church here today, are those who profess faith in Jesus Christ together with their children. We believe our children belong to the church. Children who are here. You've been baptized because you belong to the church. (laughs) And so there's the disagreement. There's some of the problems. And we're working through those problems here. It's not just a Protestant problem. It's not just a 19th, 20th century problem. Paul spoke about it in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 13 when he was dealing with the way that, that people were beginning to follow prominent men in the church. One saying, I am of Paul, or I am of Cephas, I am of Apollos, and the very, uh, very highly motivated godly people say, well, uh, we're of Christ. Okay? 
and, and you had the tensions and divisions coming. And he asked that question in 1 Corinthians 1.13. Is Christ divided? That even with our disagreements and lack of combined understanding of all things or differences in doctrines and applications, is Christ divided? And the answer is, no. The things that we look at and that we think are dividing us really aren't in the eyes of Christ as far as being one holy Catholic Church gospel doctrine. Even there, there are some disagreements between the Arminians and the Reformed camp. But do we discount them as brothers and sisters in the Lord? I hope you don't. Or how we worship. And I don't mean just contemporary versus traditional. How we worship God. And, and what we do in our worship. And what our liturgy is. And worship can be more or less pure. And which I like about our confession as it addresses the issue of the church. Some worship is more, some is less pure. But there's still congregations of the Lord. Still one holy Catholic church. And you could go on with how immorality rises or offenses increase. And, and why I say this, that we can still look and say it is one holy Catholic church, is because the Lord Jesus dealt with His churches in real time in that first century. You have the letters to the seven churches of Revelation from Ephesus to Laodicea. And if you look at a map, you'll see that in the ancient world, Ephesus right around to uh, Laodicea formed a horseshoe in the country now we call Turkey. And there was about 500 kilometers that separated those churches from Ephesus to Laodicea. And I'm sure when you read those seven letters... If we were to apply our modern day sensibility of what church we would belong to, most of us would be hard pressed to admit a number of those churches under the umbrella, the church. And yet, what did Jesus say to every one of those congregations? To the church at Ephesus. Your love for me has waned. To the church at Thyatira, your immorality is great. To the church at uh, Laodicea, I really want to spit you out of my mouth. (laughs) And yet he called them his church. That ought to make us become aware of what it means to confess one holy Catholic Church. And to understand that though we may have differences of agreement in gospel doctrine, worship, in dealing with offenses and persecution or immorality, all these things that so often cause division in our day, it is still the one holy, visible Catholic Church. It's a church this side of heaven that has wheats and tares. Read the parable. (laughs) 
Do we pull up the tares? No, you'll pull up the wheat. <laughs> it's going to be this way till the Lord returns. <laughs> the wheat and the tares exist within the church. We have our Judases and Peters and our James and Johns. <laughs> they, they all exist within the church. And we strive to deal with each one in their circumstances and faults and sins and warts and all. But it is the church. One man said this, that we need to understand that our sinful conduct and condition does not destroy the essential unity of the church. And you might say, well, how can that be true? It's because Christ is the cornerstone of His church. And He is a rock that cannot be moved or shaken. And if we are founded upon that cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and His Gospel is there being preached and His Word is being taught, however weak we might find it, Christ's cornerstone exists. We need to learn to, to build upon that. And the other reason too is that Jesus intercedes for His church and He intercedes for His church particularly in this area of unity. Again, that high priestly prayer of Christ, John 17. It's one of the most precious prayers of Christ. If you think about that verse in Hebrews that talks about Jesus as our great high priest who lives forever to intercede for us that none of us should be lost but all of us should be saved to the uttermost. What's he praying? Well, among the many intercessions Christ has, it is this. John 17, verse 21 that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And Jesus is praying that prayer now, in this time, before He returns. He is praying this now so that the world could see in the unity of this church that God the Father is over all. It's interesting how the Lord, how the Lord has the Father's glory in mind when He prays for the unity of the church. How the Lord Himself in praying for that, has a love for the church. I heard this statement long before, but it bears in this particular subject. Has a love for the church than all of us collectively together have. We do many things out of love for the church. But you know, it is never a loving thing to bring schism into the church or to cause schism in the church. And Jesus is praying against that. Oh, that we may be one, even as the Father and the Lord Jesus are one. Father in Him, He in the Father. Oh, that we may be one in them, 
so that the world may believe that the Father sent Christ. So this unity issue is a big issue. And and it's one that uh, we're devoting two messages to. And one that Paul is dealing with here in Ephesus, particularly in this chapter. And here he calls us, as he has in the first three chapters laid before us the glory of the Trinity, the glory of God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the glory of the work of our salvation that each person of the Trinity has accomplished, the the glory of the work of the Spirit in bringing us into the wisdom and knowledge of God, the wonder of God's grace. He's laid before us all of those doctrines and now He comes to say, now let the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Gospel, the doctrine of His grace, let it now start to work in your life. And what's the very thing that he focuses on first? I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's almost as if Paul understood human nature. You could say, as Job said, we are born to trouble as sure as sparks fly upward. Well, we are born to divisiveness as well. It's just one of those things that that rises up the differences that we have and sometimes they become problematic in us being together. But here, Paul looks at the congregation and he says, you have a responsibility to keep the unity of the Spirit. We're going to look at that in our time remaining, the unity of the Spirit. What is that about? How are we to keep it? That is, how are we to guard and persevere in the unity of the Spirit? Well, we need to understand that this church, first and foremost, is a fellowship that has been established by the Holy Spirit. Not by me, Our presbytery was inclined to come, but it is the working of the Holy Spirit who has established this communion of the saints, and it is the Holy Spirit who makes us one, who unites us together. My friends, at the deepest level, and this is from John 14.23, at the deepest level, we together as Christ's church We have this reality. Grab this more than anything. If you leave with this, I I hope you leave with this and you meditate on this. It is the Holy Spirit who has made our lives collectively a home, a dwelling place for the Father and the Son. Grab hold of that truth. Because as I've said before in this series, and I told you I would be reminding, of you, reminding you of this often, the church does not rise and end with Lord's Day worship. We are gathered here as the church to worship God in spirit and in truth, to be renewed and revived in our hearts. But after this service is over, we don't stop being the church. And we really need to understand that. 
And even as we are in this time a dwelling place for the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit, when we go to our homes, we are still that dwelling place of God. God is in our midst. God is with us. And and Scripture, when it speaks of that truth, does not speak as much of it in respect of our individuality. Scripture speaks of it more often than not in respect of our collectiveness as the body of Christ. We are the church. The Holy Spirit has made us a dwelling place for the Son, for the Father. Isn't that marvelous? When you stop and think about that, God has said of Zion, of the church, here I will dwell. That's who we are. And when we begin to understand that, we begin to understand what Paul is saying, that we need to keep that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That oneness that the Spirit has made us in Christ. And this pertains to our conduct, first of all, in verse 2. How do we keep the unity of the Spirit? Well, he tells us, Four things, with all lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, and forbearance, or bearing with one another in love. Our conduct is important. Parents know the difficulties, especially with many children, but all it takes is two. Parents know the challenge of teaching their children to get along with one another. And as much as we say we love each other, (laughs) we have those days where the antagonism uh, between siblings rises to such a fervor that uh, we need to step in with discipline. (laughs) Well, we are called the children of God for a reason. (laughs) We, We have the same struggles. But what is it that makes for unity? Notice what Paul doesn't say here. Paul doesn't say, and we'll deal with this next week, but he doesn't say doctrine makes for unity. He doesn't say all of you in your homes doing the same thing makes for unity. What he says that makes for unity is, first of all, our conduct. How we treat each other. And our unity is foremost dependent upon these four graces that work out in our conduct to one another. And the very first one, again, is lowliness. With all lowliness. What is lowliness? I'm just going to run quickly through these four graces. Lowliness is having a humble perspective of yourself in relation to other people. Romans 12.3 again. Do not think more highly of yourself than you should, but think of others. And that's lowliness, having a humble perspective of yourself with the purpose of serving others. Again, think of Christ, and I'm going to take us to Christ in in all of this, but think of Christ, the eve of His crucifixion. 
the things that he had to do in humility before his disciples, the church, in those twelve apostles. And he had to get up at one point to wash everyone's feet because they were filthy. And none of the others would do that because it was the lowliest of tasks that anyone could do. And you know this story. As he came to Peter, Peter was just so ashamed for Jesus that he would do that. He didn't rise up and say, Lord, let me do it. What does he say? Don't do this to me. This is just too humiliating for you. But in lowliness, he did. And even on that same evening, a little later, all of the disciples, and you can read that, I believe it's in Luke, began to argue for at least the third time again, who was the greatest? Who is the greatest? And can you imagine just sitting there being Jesus, sitting there listening to all 12 of your disciples arguing, I'm greater. No, Peter's greater. No, James. And all that. And he comes and he says, you don't get it yet. <laughs> Greatness in the kingdom of God is found in what? Lowly service. You want to be great? Become a servant. And that lowliness, that lowliness, that humble perspective of yourself with the purpose of serving others. Gentleness or meekness, as some versions will have it. Gentleness. And what is gentleness in this case, in this setting? It is being able to respond to offenses without anger or rashness. How many are successful at that? It's hard, isn't it? We're told in Numbers 12 that Moses was the meekest man in all of the earth. We know there's one meeker. We'll get to him in a minute. But just think of what tested the meekness, the gentleness of Moses. When his brother and sister came up to him and said, Who do you think you are having married that Egyptian woman? Isn't that something? How many of you would have sat there still in your hearts and not cried out, you racist, you bigot? And what we hear of Moses is him simply enduring that offense, waiting on the Lord to judge between them. That's gentleness at work. And I'm not saying these four graces are easy. (laughs) But you see what makes for unity. And of course, the Lord Himself. He said, I am lowly and gentle. How often have we offended the Lord Himself with our sins, with our lackluster love, with our desire to do other things than spending devotional time with Him. Even with our our lack of desire to to worship Him, but to be out of another place. All of these things. And yet, what does the Lord say in His lowliness and gentleness? Come to me. I'll give you rest. Because I am lowly and gentle. And long-suffering. Long-suffering. And this is, as the Word says, suffering a long time, persevering in patience with the weaknesses and faults of others. We all have many faults. We all have many weaknesses. 
And at times those weaknesses turn into offenses. But we're all struggling and we can look in a particular window into a person's life and sometimes we'll get that thought running through our mind. Is that, well, they can't be much of a Christian if they're doing that. <laughs> and not recognizing the, the weaknesses and faults that people are laboring in. And long-suffering comes to patiently persevere with them. And again, isn't that one of the great words that describes the Lord and His gracious attributes? Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord our God, long-suffering with us. And the last one, bearing in love, forbearance. And this is a hard one. But to forbear with someone is to endure through sin so that repentance and mercy may prevail. Enduring through sin for repentance and mercy to prevail. The Lord gives us the great descript of that with His saving grace toward us and Romans 3.25 How God in Jesus Christ set forth His Son as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. Do you know how long God put up with the sins of this world before sending His Son to accomplish that mighty work of redemption? To propitiate our sins. And we stand on this side of God's forbearance with the world, holding back till that fullness of time when He would send His Son to accomplish that work of atonement, redemption for all His people. He should have destroyed this world every day of its existence since the fall of man. He did destroy the world at one time. But then put a uh, a rainbow in the uh, clouds to remind Himself every time, no, I will forbear the sins of this world so that the fullness of my inheritance to my Son will come in. I am forbearing so that my mercy will prevail to every generation. Isn't that amazing? I just gave you two news items about Canada this past week. And you should... You know, the courts of heaven looking at this and saying, so you want to legitimize someone's sinful behavior against another person and continue in murder? Oh, God is forbearing. And He says to us, forbear. He's given us these graces in His Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who works these graces within our lives so that we may bear God's image before one another to keep the unity of the Spirit. You can't say, I can't be lonely or gentle or long-suffering or forbearing. Because if you're in Christ, you can. You just need to do it. And His Spirit is there to help you. 
and the bond that comes with this unity of the Spirit. He says the bond here. What is the adhesive that makes this all stick together? And he tells us there, it's peace. If you struggle to be lowly, if you struggle to be gentle, if you struggle to be long-suffering or forbearing, look to peace. <laughs> and as it appears to us in this text, we, we understand this is, this is speaking back to what he dealt with in chapter 2 and how Jesus is our peace. Think about what peace Christ has accomplished for us with God. If there were ever two things that should never be united, it is a sinner with the Holy God of Heaven. And yet Christ has come and made peace between God and the sinner. Isn't that marvelous? We, through faith in Jesus Christ, have been so justified that we have what? Peace with God. Isn't that amazing? We should have His wrath. God should hate us with all the intensity of His holiness. But in Christ we have peace. My friends, Paul is saying is that's the bond, that's the glue that brings together lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, forbearance in the Spirit. Jesus is our peace. As He says in Ephesians 2.14, He is the One who makes us one because He's reconciled all of us together with God. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Then you have been reconciled to God. You are at peace with God. Now look at your brothers and sisters. Do they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? They have been reconciled to God. They are at peace with God. And it's the cross that has done this. Our conduct, our bond, our foundation. Last year in verses 4 to 6. And here, seven times, the word one is before us. And what Paul is doing here. And and understanding that as much as we strive to maintain and keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we know we're going to struggle. But but our efforts aren't the foundation of this unity. What is? It's God Himself. One God. And all that that oneness that He brings out in verses 4 to 6, seven times. One is before us seven times the foundation of perfection where our triune God becomes that unshakable foundation for our unity. Praise God it's not left up to us. Praise God it will be maintained. We have one Spirit who forms us as one body and who has called us to that one hope My friends, do you have that calling on your heart by the Spirit? Do you know that hope in Christ? We have one Lord in whom we all share the same saving faith and by whom we have all been baptized into His death and resurrection. Do you believe in Christ? Have you been baptized 
in the Lord. We have one God and Father, the same Heavenly Father that is ruling over all things for our good and the one in whom we live and call upon. Are you able to say that God in heaven is my Father? My friends, I hope all of you are saying yes to those questions. If you're not, the unity of the Spirit is beyond you at this time. But if you're saying yes, my friends, we are united. We are one holy Catholic Church. It's here. By God's grace, we can love this body even as we love Christ. Are you endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Seek God. Know Christ. Call upon Him. He is your help. Let's pray.